Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. These are the audio versions of the sermons preached each Sunday. I hope you enjoy. Our first scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from John chapter 11, verses 20 to 27. This is the story of Lazarus. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we enter into the new year, we've been doing a sermon series called Brave New World, which is based on the science fiction novel written by Aldous Huxley in 1932. Brave New World envisions a future that is transformed by technological innovation. And that's the reason why I have named this series Brave New World, because we are on the cusp of a technological revolution. It is estimated that over the next 10 to 20 years, we are going to see so much technological innovation that is going to shift our world in dramatic ways that our lives will never be the same. From genetic engineering to artificial intelligence to the colonization of other planets, this technology is going to transform the world in which we live. And so each week, what we're doing is we're taking a look at one of these technological innovations. We're going to ask, what is it going to do? How is it going to impact us? And what is the ethics behind all of this innovation when it comes to fruition? And then we're going to turn that around and we're going to look at it from a Christian perspective and ask, what exactly does the Christian faith have to offer in helping us navigate this new technology as a society? And far from being outdated or irrelevant, I think what you will find is that the Christian faith has a lot to offer in this brave new world. Last week, we talked about how technological innovation is going to change the way that we work with artificial intelligence. This week, we are going to be looking at how technological innovation is going to change the way our bodies, our minds, and even our consciousness operates. To begin, I just want to make a reference to the sci-fi series Star Trek, which you may be aware of, and within that series, there is an enemy known as the Borg, which is a pseudo-species of cyborgs that are a constant threat to the Starship Enterprise. 
Now, that word cyborg stands for cybernetic organism. And it refers to an organism that is made of both mechanical and biological parts. And technically today, there are already humans that are cyborgs. We have, through doctors, been helped with various mechanical things that we have installed in our bodies. But according to the real definition of a cyborg, we're not quite there yet. But recently, there's been technology that has come out that is getting us closer to that. An example of this would be somebody who has lost their arm. Normally, under those conditions, a person would be given a prosthesis. But recently, they've been developing robotic arms that can connect to the nerves in our shoulder. So if your arm is amputated and taken off, the nerves that connected to your hand that allow you to use your hand, those are still operable. They communicate with your brain. And so when they take this robot arm, they'll connect it to the nerves, and then you can operate it with your brain. So to give you a sense of what this is like, I want to show you a video of one of the first people to really operate something like this. For the last four years, Johnny and a few dozen other men and women have been testing versions of the MPL at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab in Maryland. But today is different. Researchers are delivering the arm to him to keep for a year and do pretty much whatever he wants with it. It's part of a 10-year-long research project funded by the U.S. Defense Department to create a prosthetic that could replace the human hand and arm. This is the first time the MPL is being left with someone for actual out-of-the-lab use. So after three days, we get out of Dodge and let Johnny use it the way he wants to use it. I am going out of my head. Yes. He's the kind of pioneer of this take-home, which is the essential next step in kind of getting approval, getting it out to be a functional device. The MPL has 26 joints. 17 of them can be moved independent of each other. And over the years, Johnny has gotten really good at using it. Watch this. And remember, he's doing this just by thinking. Johnny's moving each finger individually in order. This is something that no one else can do. In the next year, he's going to be pushing the arm to its limits. And he'll be checking in with the team at Johns Hopkins with reports. They're going to use the data that he collects to make improvements to the arm and also document what it can do that other prosthetics can't. And Johnny has big plans, too. Before the year is up, I plan on playing a piano. Never played a piano in my life. It might be one song, but I'm going to play a piano. Gotta have it. Gotta have it, they say. <laughs> now, I think that this technology has a lot of potential. And it's not just for people who have lost their arms. People who are paralyzed could greatly benefit from this technology. So people who are paralyzed, their nerves don't communicate with their brain, which is why they can't move certain parts of their body. But scientists have been able to map the brains of people who are paralyzed so that they can see in their minds if they were wanting to move their arm, that would be the neurons that are firing in the brain. And so the idea is, is that later they could connect these people to robotic arms and legs and give them the ability to move around and operate as they used to or operate in the way that most of us do now. So as this technology progresses, it has a lot of potential for people who don't have 
normal limbs and arms. But it could also go further than simple medical uses. I want you to imagine if the people from Johns Hopkins, if they produce a robotic arm that is actually better than the average human arm. What if they produce a leg that is more mobile? What if it is more agile, stronger than a normal human leg? And people look at it and they say, you know what? I would prefer to have the robotic arms and legs. And so they have their arms and legs intentionally amputated so that they can utilize those because they prefer them. This is a future that, although it sounds crazy, is not too far off because we've made amazing strides in the way that we are able to connect these to the body and ultimately into the brain. And one of the ways that we're going to be able to connect these things to the brain eventually is through microchips that we can implant in our brains. In fact, there is a whole company right now that was designed by Elon Musk that is attempting to do this very thing. It's called Neuralink. And last year, Neuralink introduced a pig named Gertrude. Now, this pig was special because she had a coin-sized microchip that was implanted in her brain. And Elon Musk did this to demonstrate his ambitious vision of creating a mind-to-computer interface, what he calls a Fitbit for your brain. Now, the idea is that Neuralink is focusing on people with neurological conditions, and this chip will allow them to communicate with their phone or with a computer simply by using their minds. But it has other applications as well. It could help people who are struggling with dementia, people who have Parkinson's disease, even people who have spinal cord injuries. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's going to be a long way off before they end up doing this, but I'll let you know that Neuralink has applied to the FDA to begin implanting these particular chips as soon as this year. And these prototype chips that they're looking at to start implanting in people's brains, these chips are going to open up a whole new world of what Elon Musk referred to as superhuman cognition. And this idea is that when we can combine our minds with computers, that those two things can be connected, they essentially will become a singular unit. Now, what would this be like? I want to just give you a sense. Right now, when we use computers, they are separate from us, and we have to look at everything on a screen when you watch TV or when you look at a computer. But the chips in your brain, they would actually project this onto your retinal nerve, so you could literally see it in your eye. And once your mind is completely connected to the system, you could learn, recall, look up information at the speed of a computer, which is many orders of magnitude faster than what we are right now. What's interesting about this is that Elon Musk believes that this is really important because once artificial intelligence gets so advanced, if it's conscious even, and it goes sideways, meaning that they are not benevolent like I was talking about last week, assuming that they could be malicious towards us, he believes that combining our minds with computer systems is the one way that we will be able to keep up with AI because we would be essentially still equal with them. So that's the landscape at least as it looks like right now, over the next 10 to 20 years. But I want to project a little bit further out. I want to think about something that could happen even further down the line. So right now, inside of your head, there are literally billions and billions of neurological connections. And those connections contain all kinds of different things inside of them. They contain your memories of who you are, your experiences, your skill set, 
even your consciousness. And by consciousness, I mean your sentience or what you understand with your existence. Now, I want you to imagine, perhaps one day, when scientists are capable of possibly taking all of that information, all of those connections inside of your brain, and downloading those onto a computer system. Taking all those memories, all those experiences, everything that you've been through, and downloading them. How would that change the world in which we live right now? Well, right now, all of those neurological connections, everything that's in your mind, it stays in your mind unless you put it out into the world on a computer, like by typing it down and, or creating art or making a video. These things stay inside of your mind. And when, they, when you die, those neurological connections die with you. But let's assume that one day they can actually download everything that's up there on to a computer. They can download it all, and it could be stored there indefinitely. Or maybe all of that information could be implanted into a new human being. It could be implanted into a new brain, a new body. How would that change the world in which we live right now? How would that impact the way that Christianity thinks about the world? Because what we're talking about, if that becomes possible, that they can copy all of that and download it, we're literally talking about eternal life because you could live literally indefinitely within a computer system. Now, this, of course, is the realm of religion. Eternal life is what Christianity specializes in. And in fact, we read the first scripture about eternal life in the Bible this morning from the book of Genesis. It happens in the Garden of Eden. So in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they are told that there are two trees that they are not allowed to eat from. The first tree is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The second tree is the tree of life. Now, once they eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that gives them the knowledge of God that allows them to know what God knows, good and evil. If they were to eat from the tree of life, that would allow them to live forever, becoming like God. And so once they eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God expels them from the garden for fear that they might actually end up going to the tree and eating from the tree of life and living forever. And so God places a cherubim and a flaming sword in front of it to prevent them from coming back. Now, of course, when we're talking about the tree of life, we're not talking about a literal tree. This is a mythology. It's a metaphor, but it's a metaphor that comes from the fact that we as human beings, we live finite lives. We don't live forever. We have a start and a stop point. And because of the stop point, that brings us a lot of grief. When somebody who we love dies, we mourn. We are sad. We wish that that person was still here with us. And so all of us, at some point or another, we wish that we could overcome death, that we had this ability to do so. And the tree of life represents that to us. Now, what's interesting is once you get to the New Testament, the New Testament provides an answer to this problem of how do we achieve eternal life? And the answer is found in this event known as the resurrection. And in this event, what it says is that you will literally, after you die, be reborn into a new body. And so the resurrection is really grounded in this idea that one day later on, God will reassemble you into a new human being that is no longer subject to the physical limitations of our current bodies. Now, this is, of course, what the story that we read in the Gospel of John is all about, the story of Lazarus. So Lazarus dies, he's placed in a tomb, and everybody is mourning his loss. And so Jesus, he comes up and he talks to a woman named Martha, and she says, you know, I know that I will see Lazarus one day again at 
the resurrection. But Jesus wants her to know that he is responsible for the resurrection. So he causes Lazarus to come back to life, and he comes back to life in this new resurrected form. And so the idea is, it's trying to represent to us that when Jesus returns from heaven, this is a belief that Christians have, that when Jesus returns from heaven, that all people will be brought back from the dead, and they will be placed in these new bodies that are basically indestructible, that they can live forever. Today, however, many Christians actually do not believe in the literal resurrection of the body. Most Christians today believe that humans have a soul, and that when you die, your soul separates from your physical body, and then it goes from this dimension into a spiritual dimension. And it can reside in one of two realms, heaven or hell. Indeed, most Christians, when they follow Christianity, they believe the whole purpose of the Christian faith is to be able to get a guarantee that when you die, you're going to go to heaven. So if you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that helps you know that once you die, you're going to have an eternal life with God. And so literally, Jesus is, for Christians, the tree of life. That is who he is. He represents the tree of life to us because if you believe in him, then your soul gets reconnected with God and that allows you to be with God forever. It gives you access to immortality. Now, there is some empirical evidence to suggest that this is true, that we do have some kind of soul. And that empirical evidence comes from what is known as near-death experiences, or NDEs. I've talked to you about these in the past, but I want to talk to you about them again, because it's important for what we're discussing today. So the first person to really write extensively about near-death experiences was a physician named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And she was known for being unique among her peers because she actually spent a lot of time working with people who were fatally ill. So Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she came up in the 1960s. And at that time, doctors had very little exposure to death and dying. They didn't really know how to deal with it. As a physician, your job was to be able to give a person a treatment and make them better. And if you couldn't do that, you were seen as a failure. And so, as a result, if you went to the hospital and the doctor treated you and you weren't getting better and it was going to be a fatal illness, they would often shuffle you off to a dark corner of the hospital where they would let you languish and the disease would take its course. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was the first person to actually go to these people and ask them, how are you feeling? Is there anything we can do to make you more comfortable? And what she realized is that doctors really needed to be trained on how to deal with death and dying. And so after many years of working in the hospital and in classrooms, she eventually goes and writes a book that is called On Death and Dying, which deals with all manner of issues related to death, including the now famous five stages of grief. So even if you're not aware of what those five stages are, you probably are aware of them. And this book, it was a runaway success, and it cemented Kubler-Ross as being one of the most important physicians of the 20th century. Now, in the original manuscript of that book, there was a final chapter that was not included in the published manuscript. The publishers removed it. And it talked about several strange incidences where people talked about coming out of their bodies. Now, the particulars of each experience varied from person to person, but these 
were so consistent, these experiences that she was finding, is that she started writing them down. I'll give you a few examples from this chapter. So one had to do with a little girl who was dying from leukemia. So Kulberos went to visit her. She said, how are you doing? And the little girl told her that a man had come to visit her. And when she described this man, Kulberos realized that he was not a doctor. And so she became very concerned that this little girl could have been hurt by this man. And so she goes to the parents and she says, look, I'm so very sorry that this happened. We're going to really improve the security. It shouldn't have occurred. And as Kubler-Ross was describing the man to the parents, the mother became very interested, said, tell me more about this man. And she said, you know, it's very strange because the man who you're describing sounds a lot like my brother. And he died several years before my daughter was born. In fact, the clothes that you're describing him wearing is exactly what he was wearing when he died. Another example of this comes from a woman named Mrs. Schwartz. Mrs. Schwartz was suffering from Hodgkin's disease. And one day they were traversing her through the hospital and they got on an elevator and she suffered a heart attack. She went into cardiac arrest and they had to revive her. And when they got her back to life, they put her in a room and Kubler-Ross came and visited her and said, how are you feeling? How are you doing? And she said, you know, it's very strange. Uh, when I was going through that, I was actually watching it from the top of the elevator. And then I floated down behind one of the med students, and she was doodling at the top of the page while they were reviving me. Well, Kubler-Ross was obviously very skeptical of this, so she went and she found this med student, and indeed, it was true. There were these little scribbles at the top of the page. So in both of these instances, whether it's with the little girl or Mrs. Schwartz, what happened is that these people knew things that, frankly, they shouldn't have been able to know. These details should not have been knowledge to them that would have been accessible to them given the situations that they were in. Now, what I find to be so fascinating about Kubler-Ross is that her documentation of near-death experiences, this was not something that she had an agenda for. She was not going out trying to prove that there was an afterlife. She was simply a doctor who was trying to care for her patients. Skeptics of near-death experiences will say that what people are experiencing when they die is a cascade of chemicals that are being released in the brain as the brain ends up shutting down, which is true. That does happen. There are a cascade of chemicals that are released, but these chemicals do not explain everything that happens when people are going through a near-death experience because if it were true that it was just chemicals, there would be other things that would be happening that, frankly, they should be able to explain, and they can't. I'll give you an example. So there was a man over in Britain. He flatlined while he was in the hospital. And while he was dying, he floated up out of his body, left the hospital, and flew over the countryside, and he ended up going inside of a pub. And he listened to people's conversations while he was in the pub. Well, eventually, the next thing he knows is he wakes up, he's back in the hospital. And he didn't know if what he experienced was a dream or not. So eventually, he's released, and he goes for a drive out in the countryside, and he finds this particular pub. And he goes inside, and he waits for some of the patrons to show up. And he asks them, he says, hey, I know this is strange, but did you have this conversation? And they were shocked that he actually knew what they were talking about because they knew that this guy wasn't there listening to them. And they said, yes, this is exactly what we said. So again, these are details that he should not have known. He was miles away in a hospital, and they were having this conversation in a pub. How could he possibly have known that? But as much as I believe in the soul, as much as I believe in an afterlife, as much as I believe 
that near-death experiences are telling us about those things. The fact is that it is not definitive proof. I want it to be definitive proof, but it's not. So it brings us back to this question of what if one day we are able to download onto a computer all the things that we are currently storing in our brain? What does that do to the Christian belief in an afterlife and a soul? And I think to really talk about this, we need to talk about what do Christians believe a soul contains. And of course, there's no rigid definition of this. It's just kind of what we think. But I would say that most people believe that the soul is more than just the spiritual part of who we are, is the essence of who we are, and that the soul contains memories of who we are. And in fact, this is consistent with many near-death experiences, because when people are going through a a near-death experience, what often happens is they will say that once they get to the other side, they can remember what they did in their life. They have knowledge. And so people who come back from these experiences, they often become voracious readers because they want to take in as much information as they can due to the fact that they know that they can take that with them to the other side. So when it comes down to it, the soul, it really contains, at least Christians believe, it contains everything that makes you, you. So... If one day scientists do create a technology where all of this information can be downloaded from your mind into a computer, how do we deal with this? What does it do to our religion if this technology destroys the need for an afterlife? Many people would say that what it does is it eliminates the need for Christianity altogether. What's the point? If they can do that, if you can live on eternally that way, then clearly everything that Christianity promotes is wrong. But I disagree with that. I actually think it makes Christianity more relevant than it's ever been before. Because take a step back. I want you to imagine for a moment that people can actually live perpetually. They can literally live forever. In a world like that, it's one thing if you're a person who's good and kind and giving and loving and nurturing. If you're that kind of person, then living forever is great, right? That's the concept of heaven. But it's a whole different thing if the person who's living forever is evil, mean, malicious, hurtful to the people around them. That's the concept of hell. You don't want those people living forever. And the question is, what allows us to go down one path versus the other? Well, a lot of it is what we are taught in our lives. If we are taught to live a certain way, we will often go down that path. Not always, but often. And so one of the most amazing things that we've been given, one of the greatest gifts that we have, is that we have a history of Jesus' life in the New Testament. We have his teachings. We have the things that he taught us. He shows us where we have to go, and he gives us a sense of how we are supposed to live our lives. And so what's amazing about Jesus is that his movement his way of being, that way of life can transform the world. So just imagine for a moment, if people took the core of his teachings, love God, love your neighbors, love yourself. If we were to just take those basic things and apply them to everyone in the world, how would that shift and change the world around? The people around us, they would be more selfless, they would be more giving to other people. They would serve the people around them. And on top of this, they would also be willing to share of their resources. Now, that's the kind of world you would want to live in. If you're living on forever, you want those kind of people to be around you. That's the kind of people you want to be associated with. But if you're living forever, 
the world you don't want to be associated with is a world where people are malicious, mean, and hurtful. You don't want those people in a world where they can live forever because that would be horrible to have those people around all the time. And so as I'm envisioning this brave new world where it's possible that one day they could take everything that's in our minds and take it out and it could live on forever in that way, I hope that you will understand that what we need to do as Christians is promote the Christian faith. We need to get out there and talk about what it means to be Christian, why it's important to us. We at First Presbyterian Church, we are very, very good at living out the faith. You all are fantastic at being examples of what the faith should look like. But we're not so great at talking about it. We don't want to tell people that we're Christian that much. We don't want to tell people that they need to follow the faith. But I think we need to. I really think we need to get out there and talk about what does this mean to us? Why should we be a Christian? Because the truth is, is that if we don't do that, then our faith is going to shrink. And that message isn't going to get out the way, the way that it needs to. Because in this new world where it's not our children, not our children's children, but our children's children's children could be in a place where they could live on perpetually. You want them to be able to live a life of love, kindness, welcome, nurture to all people. And we can do that if they truly believe in Jesus's way of life. But we have to teach that. So we have to teach to our children and make sure that they really have it inside of them. We need to teach it, have them teach it to their children and so on. But if we don't talk about the message, it'll never get there. So what I truly believe is we have to work on building the kingdom today because if we wait, if we don't say anything, it may not be here for us tomorrow. So let's make an effort together to make sure that we are pushing our Christianity out into the world, that we can bring more people into the fold because we can make a difference in their lives. We can make their lives better. And if we make their lives better today, then I truly believe that'll mean that we will have a better world tomorrow. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.